0: On Friday the 13th, April 2029, an asteroid large enough to fill the Rose Bowl as though it were an egg cup will fly so close to the Earth that it will dip below the altitude of our communication satellites. We did not name this asteroid Bambi. Instead, we named it Apophis, after the Egyptian god of darkness and death.
1: Death! The Interplanetary Podcast: The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh, I love that quote because it had like it had Egyptian stuff in there. It had darkness. It had death. I mean, what more do you need? Do you know who it was? Of course, I do. Well, gone then. Uh, Well, I reckon it was N-D-T. You might know him as Neil deGrasse Tyson. Correct. Happy birthday, Neil. 1958. He's 60 today. Incredible stuff. So
0: is Andre Kuypus.
1: Ah, yes.
0: And we met Andre Kuypus at STEC a couple of years ago. He was the only astronaut
1: we didn't interview. Dutch physician and amazing astronaut. Yeah. Yeah. Well, happy birthday, chaps. Both 60. Well, Matt, it's Podcast
0: 101. Podcast 101, and what we haven't done is got any Space 101s together, have
1: we? Well, Matt, but welcome, we'll do it some other time. welcome to Room 101 in space. Matt, what would you put in Room 101 space? I think the most annoying thing about space is... It's just really expensive. I wish I could just put on my contactless card, like an Oyster card. I just know to, what... I want uh, to go to the moon. Uh, it's the tyranny of the rocket equation. That's, yeah. what,
0: that's what I want to put in room 101.
1: OK, they're both going in. What's happening, Matt? This week, by the time this
0: podcast comes out, actually, uh, Commander Drew Feustel will hand over the station control to German astronaut Alexander Guest. Uh, this is actually happening right now, Jamie, as we speak. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, Expedition 56 Commander Drew Feustel and Ricky Arnold, both of NASA.
2: Ricky! Ricky!
0: And Oleg Artemiev will uh will be en route back to the steps of Kazakhstan.
1: They will be, yes. Well, well yeah. done, chaps.
0: Yes, in their MS08, not the one with the hole in it. Enjoy the handover. Yes, so they should be back by the time this podcast comes out. That will just leave Alexander Guest, Serena Anon-Chancellor and Sergei Prokibiev all on their own on the ISS. Do you reckon they'll be loving it or do you reckon they'll be really sad? I reckon it's More really, room. I reckon it's more room, yeah. Like, I reckon. Oh, like, yeah. Yes. But maybe, actually. I wonder if it's more dangerous. And I wonder if there's more work to do when there's just three of you. Hmm.
1: Don't know. Do you reckon that they start secretly eating some of the food of the astronauts that are coming up? They'll yeah. be like, oh, we're really sorry, mate. We don't know what happened to your bacon roll. Hmm.
0: Yeah, possibly. Yeah. So MS10 goes up on October the 11th with Alexey Ovchinin and Nick Haig. So it's just the two of them. So there's only going to be five astronauts during Expedition 57. Good luck, lads. And in the spirit of the IAC 2018 in Bremen, Mm -hmm. which, of course, we've got serious FOMO over. We have. Uh, Hi to everyone out there. Uh, We're sticking with international cooperation with the Germans. So early this morning, Jamie, as Mm -hmm. we record this, mascot landed on Ryugu. (laughs) So, yeah, mascot, Japanese and German collaboration, another rover that's landed down on the surface of Ryugu. And it's going to take quite a lot of different measurements, including lots of photos. It's got a little light on there as well. Yeah. Ho from the German DLR Institute said, it could not have gone better from the lander telemetry we were able to see that it separated from the mother craft and made contact with the asteroid surface approximately 20 minutes later.
1: I like that it said mothercraft.
0: Yes, the mothercraft.
1: Brilliant. Hayabusa
0: two. Brilliant. Just Oh, congratulations. Hayabusa two is the space mission that
1: keeps on oh, giving. Matt, you can't go wrong with a collaboration between the Japanese and the Germans. I mean, yeah. Check that, that out. You've got the efficiency and the seri- of the Germans and the and serious and you've got technology. The technology and futuristic thinking of the Japanese. So I say Kanichiwa and V Gates do. <laughs> nice. Coming up later, we've got more
0: German stories in space in our space mission of, of the, week. the week. Congratulations to the Nobel Prize in Physics has been awarded to three people, one of them a woman for the first time in 55 years. About bloody time. And I, I, do you know what? I Actually, I find that a little bit depressing, but, but nevertheless, Donna
1: Strickland
0: from Canada gets the award with her co-scientist, Dr. Maru, for their development of the chirped pulse amplification, which is a special type of
1: laser. Now, I want to know more about this, but firstly, congratulations, Donna. And congratulations, Dr. Maru. Yeah. So it's found
0: its way into things like um, cancer therapy and corrective laser eye surgery. But I was thinking, and the reason why I brought it up on the podcast... Other than the the sweet genius bit of the fact that that stupid professor who said that women couldn't be, do science earlier on in the week, oh, good, um, uh, which is a view that we do not hold on the podcast. What, I mean, what, an, what what a
1: thing to say! What utter <laughs> <a> bell end!
0: <laughs> yeah, just ridiculous. Um, but I was thinking maybe this um, chirped pulse amplification laser uh-huh. could be used in. Nuclear fusion or light sails for Ah. interstellar
1: travel. Yes,
0: Matt. Yes. So I'm going to look into that. It's going to be mine I'm going to try and set up a Kickstarter. Can we get them on as a guest, please? While on the subject of ridiculous viewpoints from provocative people. Spotted Chuck Yeager and Jeremy Clarkson oh. having an argument on Twitter. <laughs> oh, God, Matt, I've already sworn enough today. Don't get me started on Clarkson. Oh, man. So, Clarkson's arguing with Chuck Yeager about the origins of the X1 project. I what mean, like. Does he know? He, he does realise that Chuck Yeager was the pilot of it, right? <laughs> but I think Jeremy Clarkson was suggesting that somehow the X1 wouldn't have existed without British involvement of the Miles Corporation. And although. Obviously, we like to big up the British involvement with this. Yes. That Twitter conversation quickly descended into the normal stupidity of, oh, the Americans were late for the war. Oh, mm. you'd all be speaking German if it wasn't for the Americans. And it's just like, oh, but come it's on. It's the come only on. way he win. When well, none of you were involved with it anyway, it's not like, oh, come on, anyway. Exactly. Congratulations to NASA who was 60 on Monday. Another 60th birthday. Yeah. NASA,
1: NASA, you're all right.
0: Yeah, so Niels de Grasse Tyson is almost exactly the same age as NASA. Yeah. yeah. Spotted on the podcast here first. Oh, although I'm, I'm sure Niels, Niels de Grasse Tyson hasn't let that one pass him by. Definitely <laughs> pass that opportunity by. Definitely not. Um, uh, NASA have been uh, up to things this week. They have. They've, they've had to open up an inquiry about what's going on with the GOES satellite, mm-hmm. number 17, that went up in, on March the 1st. Apparently, there's something wrong with one of its instruments, which means it will miss out on 3% a year of the data. Oh. You think, is that it? But apparently, that's a big deal.
1: It's quite a chunk.
0: It's quite a chunk, apparently, 3%. Plucky little Gaia is in the news again. Ooh. This is one of my favourite stories of the week.
2: Favorite de- story of, of the
0: week: That guy has spotted stars flying between galaxies. What? So stars that have been ad- maybe ejected from their mother galaxies and flying out. Oh, so flying some, the nest? Yeah, literally. But I mean, this, I think this is pretty surprising. But I mean, that's incredible—a star that.
1: Yeah, how's that possible? Uh,
0: well, I, I guess it's interactions with black holes, because when, when a star goes flung towards a black hole, it mm. might get flung out of the galaxy completely, or it might have been flung away by a supernova event or something like that. But it's uh, scientists from the Netherlands. Uh, of the 7 million Gaia stars with full 3D velocity measurements, they found 20 that could be travelling fast enough to eventually escape from the Milky Way. But rather than flying away from the galactic centre, most of the high-velocity stars, spotted, were racing towards it. What? They could be stars from another galaxy zooming right through the Milky Way. Now, what would be exciting? Imagine if there were a planetary system around those stars. Yeah. And whether whether you could actually survive, whether you could be a civilization around an intergalactic star system. It would be the most exciting thing ever because... Because it would be one of the only ways you could travel from galaxy to galaxy.
1: Imagine hopping over to another galaxy. (laughs) It's
0: just incredible. What? So, yeah, that's one of my favourite stories of the week. Although there are other explanations, so more data is needed. But if that is true, that's absolutely incredible.
1: Watch this space, Matt. Mm. Literally. Setting its controls for the heart of the sun, the Parker Solar Probe made its first flyby of Venus. Yes, that this week. Super exciting because we've spoken about this before. Yeah, I I wonder
0: if we're actually going to see some pretty pictures from that.
1: I'm hoping so.
0: I hope so. But Cloud we, City. Uh, unfortunately, this podcast has come out too soon for us <sighs> to, to know one way or the other. But I'll stick it in the blog. I'll stick it in the blog. Yeah, and the let's website. do it. So... Do you know what Space Word of the Week is?
1: No. It's... Ullage. Ullage? Ullage. Wait, do you mean the amount by which a container falls short of being full? Do you know that from your wine drinking days, Jamie? Yeah, I do. And I'm also a big advocate, Matt, of half glass full. Oh. You'll, just, you'll know it from my positive uh, outlook, yes. outlook on life. Yes, you have life. got a
0: very positive outlook on life. But in rocketry, Jamie, mm. in rocketry, it means gap in the tank because you cannot fill cryogenic tanks full because the pressure drop would be too great at mm. engine start. Um, So you have to to, have a little bubble in there, do you? You have to have a little, yeah, an ullage space. Okay. Yeah, so on the ground, the space between the top of the propellant load and the top of the tank is known as the ullage space. And the ullage pressure is a critical measurement during powered rocket flight. When you see rockets and space tugs in particular out in space, spacecraft themselves, Mm. now they're in uh, weightlessness. So the fuel isn't kind of weighted down, it's like sloshing around the tank. So if there's ullage in the tank, then you've got to kind of overcome that. So what they do is have these ullage motors that start and then the acceleration of the spacecraft means that the the, the propellant gets forced back into the into the tank. Oh. And so, yes, that's... Well, that's you, a bit that's clever, so, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so ullage motors, or sometimes your um, reaction control, are used to uh, push this fuel back
1: knowledge pressure
0: pushing down on fuel pushing down on fuel no man has spoke <laughs> <laughs> yes. nice that's really good, good really yeah, good yeah, that's excellent yeah 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 i was reading a magazine called oh, um, matt you're not still reading them are you yes electronic sound of all places mm. and I, I bought it because it had 50 great space songs, and I was wondering if they'd... It was really odd. I was looking up at the the, the shelf, and I realised that everyone had copied our idea of having space songs, and lots of magazines had this space songs theme on the front cover. Definitely being ripped off again, haven't we? So I bought Electronic Sounds to see what their 50 space songs were and see if we had them on our... And did we have any? We only had a few. Oh. We only had a few. They were, And there was loads that that I thought, oh, my God, that's ridiculous that we're missing. Yeah. Like... Uh, the Birds did a song called Space Odyssey three months before the film Space Odyssey came out, and it was based on Arthur C. Clarke's The Center. No,
1: how did we miss that one? I know. Oh
0: How oh, is that not on our space playlist? But anyway, the story of Otrag was in this Otrag. particular Ottrag was in this particular issue. What's Otrag, Matt? It's uh, about a documentary that's coming out this week called Fly Rocket Fly Mit mashten zu den Sternen which means with machetes to the stars. Wow. Now that or from the jungle to the stars. Is it album title? Well, I think from the jung- from the jungle to the stars is the name of the album, the soundtrack album. Yeah. by which is going to be released on Bureau B, a kind of modern kraut rock label. And it's going to feature songs by Chimera, like Skyella and Miles Lampold-Sharson. So it's like... Your I, love proper... it. I
1: literally want, want this on vinyl. Yeah,
0: t- no, totally. Imagine this on yeah. vinyl. This is going to be... Uh, 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 yeah. It's, you're getting that for your birthday, don't you? Yes. A crazy mixture of venture story and political thriller from Lausch, Besten Strike and business thriller located between
1: Fitzcarraldo... Oh, one of the best films Lord ever. and Fear
0: and Tintin on the Moon. Have you seen
1: Fitzcarraldo? though? Yeah, obviously. Unbelievable. Well, if well, anyone it's... hasn't seen that, Werner Herzog, check it out. It's it's mind-blowing, to say the least. But this,
0: this could be really good. Fly Rocket Fly is a documentary by Oliver Sheehan about the world's first private space company.
1: Oh, nice.
0: The world's... Long before SpaceX in 1975, there was OTRAG, the Orbital Transport and Rocket Corporation. With Lutz Kaiser, a Swabian engineer who'd been dreaming of the stars since childhood. And his whole idea was low-cost, modular space access. I like this guy already. Yeah. So you have to see the, these rockets and the rocket designs. They look like nothing you've ever seen before. Wow. And I, I had no idea about this story at all. Otrag. It used to do things like use VW windscreen wipers as engine regulators. So it's all about using like off-the-shelf components to build rockets. Sounds pretty eco. Yeah. All well, for it. in some ways. But Apart from the rocket fuel. <laughs> here's the problem. Germany suffered a bit of a brain drain after 1945 mm. during Project Paperclip, which we've t- talked about before, which is how uh, Werner von Braun was spirited away with others like Kurt Debu. Mm. Who was the uh, the director of Cape Kennedy? But both Debu and uh, Werner von Braun um, served uh, were on this board of this uh, particular company. Oh, uh, run by Lutz Kaiser, and uh, they went off to the jungle in Sa'ir, right? Uh, which at the time was run by the African dictator Mobutu Sese Seko, and uh, it's now the. Democratic Republic of the Congo, of course, but he gave them a piece of this, a piece of Zaire that was bigger than East Germany. What? And uh, it's also at the same time they were doing things like Rumble in the Jungle between Cassius Clay and George Foreman. That's right. So uh, obviously Mobutu was into these megalomaniacal projects, and this film is based around all the adventures of making this rocket work everything that was politically against it. So obviously people weren't that happy about Germans flying very dangerous <laughs> ballistic missiles um, immediately after the Second World War, so that wasn't good. Mm. Also, Europe were now sort of trying to develop uh, a European rocket and, yes. and it wasn't long after that ESA was formed and they started working on the Ariane project. So that was kind of one of the nails in the coffin of this project. Um, but it's a really, really interesting rocket and this looks like a oh, great you've documentary. got to
1: look at the photos too. We'll put them up on the blog. One of these photos looks like something you'd see in a New York skyline. It's yeah.
0: amazing, isn't it? Yeah, well, it, it's, what, what it is, is it's instead of being made up of one big booster, it's made up of lots of steel pipes, mm. just lots and lots of the same piece over and over again. So you just keep repeating the one piece called the uh, CRPU, the Common Rocket Propulsion Unit.
1: Yes. Which is
0: a, just basically a, a large steel pipe that's made from the same steel pipe that they use in pipeline construction, so it's really cheap. And it runs on a fuel of a clean, a sort of cheap version of kerosene, not the RP1 that uh, is usually used in rockets, and, and an oxidizer mix of nit- nitric acid and dinitrogen tetroxide. One of the tricks that they managed to get over was to make that burn stably by swirling the mixture. So I think that swirling of the mi- mixture and being able to throttle it using a slight, a mechanical um, valve was the only kind of mechanical part of this rocket. So everything else was pressure fed um, by using ullage. Nice. Yes. Um, so that was all pressure fed so it was it was extremely cheap and you just scaled it up and you scaled it up. one of the things they had to do was buy some English um, Argozi aircraft, these ginormous double hold aircraft because uh, Lufthansa could only fly by regulation one liter of nitric acid per flight because it's so dangerous mm. and these Aeroplanes were designed to carry three containers of one thousand two hundred liters of nitric acid. Jeez. <laughs> so uh, this guy Helmut Bouchard, helped build this massive complex, this spaceport uh, out in the jungle. I mean, it's just incredible. And he and he he just said, "This project was the strangest and most useless in the ass end of nowhere." <laughs> <laughs> so it's like literally just crazy, crazy stuff, and uh, yeah, eventually it it kind of had the plug pulled on it because it was it, it, because of all the kind of political issues. Uh, not before they went to Libya to carry it on, by the way. Did they? Yeah, they God, went to Libya and tried. Yeah, it, it just it's it's crazy. Uh, they went to the Congolese jungle. Um, in the Congolese jungle, they had this this. Uh, the, the place where the spaceport was built mm. is on a 500 meter high uh, peak called Kapani Kapani okay Kapani and the Kapani means split butt <laughs> 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 and, uh, and it's because it's the way it looks uh, the way it looks is kind of like two hills I suppose yeah. but uh, it, it apparently they think it's more to do with the fact that like walking to the top of it makes your bum ache
1: Oh I'm gonna have to remember that
0: split butt Kapani. And to some, it's considered the holy grail of, like, rocket launch sites. If you want to sort of find, like, a rocket launch site that's ridiculous, mm. then you go there. We should do it. We oh, should we definitely should go. go there. Oh yeah. and Leonid Brezhnev mm-hmm. of the French and uh, Russians were not impressed, and they did everything they could to make sure that this project got closed down. Oh, Why? Yeah. Uh, well, because because they distrusted the Germans at the time. This is what, it wasn't too far, long after the Second World War, and that Germans had such a big brain drain, Jamie. That that, that things like um, that they were helping develop the Europe rocket and things mm. like that. But their bits were always the bits that blew up, no,
1: yeah.
0: because they had to, because they'd had this massive brain drain in Project Paperclip. Mm. So this was, you know, they all went off and tried to do this amazing um, rocket thing. Uh, Using these credible parts. But, yeah, and then went off to Libya afterwards. And the last launch of an Otrag rocket actually took place in 1983 in S-range. God, that's mad. That doesn't seem that long ago. So, yeah, in Northern Europe. Recently, they've been advising interorbital systems. Uh Uh-huh. And also, Armadillo Aerospace have been taking a lot of the research and looking into how it all works.
1: We should definitely get someone from Otrag on the phone. Oh, my gosh.
0: But, yeah, I mean, the rocket itself, for example, you've got these massive steel pipes all bunched together. Yeah. So for their very, very large sort of 10 ton ten tonnes into orbit style launcher, which would be apparently sort of 10% the cost yeah. of, of any other launcher of its type, You'd have stage one, which would have 456 CRPUs. Uh-huh. So these are these steel pipe, massive steel pipes, central units. Stage two would have 114, stage three would have 48, and stage four would have seven. So you'd have, it just looks like an enormous, it's like a truck with scaffold pipe on the back. <laughs> that's, that's what it, it kind of looks like. Just absolutely well, en- enormous, but really, really, really cheap. The, the CRPU, 27 centimetres in diameter and 16
1: metres long. Quite a, a beast. It is absolutely a beast. <laughs> I need to read up more about this. I'm loving Otrag. Yeah, Otrag is just
0: absolutely amazing, isn't it? So, yeah, the only mechanism on board was the throttling valves. Because the tubing was so narrow, you didn't have to have domed sections in between the fuel
1: and just simple plates. Matt, for your pleasure, I've just pulled up a picture of Rags Congo launch pad.
0: Yep, there you are. Look at
1: S- that. Split
0: butt. Yeah, what, what an absolutely fantastic find that is. Incredible Thank you, stuff. Electronic Sound Magazine, for Thank drawing that one to my attention. Very, very much. So, Jamie, we've now got a
1: interview with Colin Stewart. We have, and this is one that we've been looking forward to because he sent us each, kindly, a copy of his latest book, which is out... Today, today, today's
0: yeah, the uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, on the fourth of October. It's a beautiful book, but what's uh, it called, Matt? It's called "How to Live in Space: The Ultimate Guide to Your Future Life in Space." And it's it's really good. It's beautiful. So, it's um, beautiful. Check it
1: out. Some beautiful pictures in there, and,
0: and you can catch Colin Stewart on, on, with his TED talks, his YouTube yeah. channel, and he's even got a asteroid named after him. What? He's got asteroid one five three four seven Colin Stewart for his efforts in popularizing astronomy. Roll the tape. Let's do this. I could do. Uh We're joined on the podcast by Colin Stewart, who is a
1: uh, a very prolific astronomy author. Uh, hello, Colin. Hi, Colin. Thank you for uh, doing this. We're all fans of your work, so we'd like to start off by having you talk about your new book, please.
2: Yeah, sure. So it's called How to Live in Space. Uh, And the idea was that with the way things are going, uh, and within a few years, the idea of having space tourism and private citizens paying to go to space more regularly, what do you need to know if you're going to make those kind of trips? So it's kind of a survival handbook for for your first trip to space. So just things like some of the basics, really, breathing, sleeping, eating, uh, the classic going to the toilet, uh, and also looking forward to sort of some of the places we might end up going to other than just uh, languishing in low Earth orbit.
1: Is there anything that surprised you uh, when while you were researching or writing the book itself?
2: I think it was just re- reminding myself how quickly things had developed in the past. So, uh, you know, Robert, Goddard, Robert Goddard's first liquid rocket in, in 1926 went for just two and a half seconds and only went to 12 and metres before it went into a cabbage patch. And yet within less than 50 years, we had a Saturn V rocket blasting people all the way to the moon. And so I think we just kind of stalled a bit after that and things slowed down. Um, and so it kind of feels like we're starting again now. We have this resurgence. We kind of, it feels like we have some extra momentum now with, with some of these private space companies knocking down the barriers.
0: Do you think it is that? Do you think it's the commercial space kicked in and reignited the space race?
2: I think so, because I, I'm not old enough to remember the, the first space race, but you talk to people that are and who remember the Apollo missions, and, and they talk so fondly of it, and I don't really ever feel that we had that from a human spaceflight perspective for, for me growing up, whereas things like the um, red Tesla sports car going into space, I mean, there are people that weren't you know, big fans of it, and They they talk, talked it down, but I don't know. I just felt like it was a bit of a game changer, and and that we might be heading in the right direction again.
1: Or well, we're both fans of that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah I think, definitely. yeah. I mean, I think, I think for me, yeah.
0: The the dual booster landing was the the sci fi moment on that one. Yeah, <laughs> just... totally.
2: I just think I remember watching it and thinking, you know, we're living in the future. This is in, this is incredible, and I think we'll look back on that day. I mean, in, in the introduction to the book, I actually use that as the sort of starting point and say, look, people might look back on that day. Um, there's even a photograph of that. You know, synchronized landing it may look back on that day as the day when everything changed again. We we started to to aim for for bigger things.
1: Completely agree. It just did not look real. It was amazing. Um. So, Colin, I've got a question about what your predictions might be for the future of space tourism in in let's say fifty years time. If you had to hazard a guess, what kind of world would you say that that looked like?
2: So, I would say that suborbital space flight will be Commonplace, and I, I still hold out hope that that I might get to go on one of those um, one of those trips, not when it costs two hundred thousand dollars a time, but uh, <laughs> yeah. you know in forty years' time or thirty years' time, and I hit retirement if, if the cost is something like you know twenty thousand that 's the sort of money people pay for a car for a round the world trip for a cruise so uh, hopefully i'll be able to do that um, and then for the kind of upper level. We got the SpaceX kind of cruising around the moon idea um, with the Japanese billionaire in in a few years time. That sort of thing um, for the very well off um, could be commonplace. I can't really see Mars being a a place for space tourism in fifty years, but but for a human mission to Mars in the next fifty years, I'm I very much hope so.
0: Do you think the Moon is where we should be concentrating our efforts now? Or do you, like others, think that actually we've done the Moon and we should really be concentrating on Mars?
2: I think Mars has to be the ultimate goal um, because we have done the Moon. But I, there's a lot of sense in using the Moon as a stepping stone to Mars because the difference is is quite stark in terms of safety, for example. You, know, you can get people back from the Moon relatively quickly if there are problems the communications lag between the moon and the earth is is a second and a half whereas it's you know can be anywhere up to 20 25 minutes each way for mars so um, i think mars has to be the goal but using the moon to test things out to get us there is i think sensible
0: so yeah with your timeline with the uh musk and the japanese billionaire going around the moon. Uh, do you really think it will be in the next few years or do you think that really is overly ambitious?
2: I think everything with SpaceX is always kind of overly ambitious. They're, they're kind of famous for hit, for sending out really ambitious timelines um, and they never meet them. But they do meet them, just not as quickly as they said they would. So I think you've got to give them a lot of credit that they do get things done, but it's always takes a bit longer than they uh, than they say, it. but that's good. I mean, they're aiming, for, they're aiming high, and, and they don't miss. They just take a bit longer to do it. So <laughs> it will. I think it will happen, but maybe not as quickly as they uh, they're saying.
1: And Colin, just off the back of that dear moon subject,
2: what, uh, who, who, which artists would you send up? I think it'd be nice to send people that 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 not a lot of people know about. Um, you mm-hmm. know, rather than sending around people that are already got that are already well known. Um, but I think you have to have a real mix. I think you've got to be quite broad with the term artist. You know, you can send up your traditional painters and sculptors, but, but to open that up to, I don't know, to opera singers or to singer-songwriters or just, just to get a real broad span of the different ways of interacting. What, what, about, what about podcasters, Colin? yeah or authors perhaps um, yeah no i know we're we're angling for for the same uh yeah it'd be good to'd be love to have someone to kind of um you know aud- audio as a medium is great you know for for radio and kind of picking up the sounds and of, of going around the moon i mean that having a having a kind of audio artist would definitely be uh definitely worthwhile oh, it would be fantastic i mean it?
0: i i suppose in a way the a trip around the moon with a bunch of artists could even be more of a an ignition, a touch paper moment than the the booster landing that we were talking about earlier on. I suppose it, it it could really ignite the whole space tourism movement. Would that be your view as well?
2: I think so, because, you know, you have a whole generation of people. You know, no one has left low Earth orbit since 1972. And so you have a whole generation of people that have never seen anyone go any further than about 400 kilometers up um so totally you know seeing people go around the moon and also seeing people that are kind of everyday people you know that aren't the the highly trained astronauts i think people will see themselves reflected in that and and that could only be a good thing for for inspiring people i think
1: colin going back to you the book what what was your favorite bit
2: of of the book that's a difficult question um I think just finding out how what some of the kind of difficulties are for for living in space. You know, some of the the little things like you can't have salt and pepper in in powder form as we used to them. You, know, you have to have them in liquid form because uh, powder gets in your eyes. Or or even looking back at some of the historical stuff that I hadn't um, really looked into before. So I really like reading about John Stapp. I don't know if you've come across him before, but He's the U.S. Air Force physician from the 50s who did these crazy G-force tests where he built himself this kind of car on a long track and he slowed down and really slowed down. I think he went from 600 miles an hour to a complete stop in a second. Um, And it meant that his his body weighed the equivalent of three and a half tons um, with the G-forces, you know, just for a fraction of a second. But the fact he didn't kill himself—I mean, he broke bones, he lost teeth, he shattered his wrist—but um, he didn't that's kill crazy. himself. And so, some of the the sort of lengths the early the early kind of space flight pioneers went to 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 give us the things, I guess, that we take for granted—that was something I hadn't looked into too much before.
0: Yeah, that really is that really is fascinating. I mean, it there is a there is a sense really that nowadays people are risk averse. And do you think that that risk averse side of us has prevented like you said we we have stalled since the apollo era has has risk aversion been part of that
2: i think so in a way i mean i don't think we should be as risky as maybe some of the initial space flight missions were for example there was no real radiation um protection for the apollo astronauts they were taking a, a massive risk they didn't get whacked by a storm from the sun but then maybe we have gone too far the other way so if you talk to astronauts um, current astronauts who 've been to the space station they are uh, some of them are arguing for a lot more autonomy because everything they do is very carefully stage managed by mission control and their argument is well if we 're going to go to Mars where there is this inherent communications delay, you know we 're not going to be able to follow instructions in a timely manner we 're going to have to be a lot more autonomous and so now, they've argued for let's have a day on the space station where mission control is there for backup but you know we make our own decisions and have this level of autonomy but by the sounds of it mission control won't won't pallet that risk um and so we do need to be a little more kind of a happy medium between between the two i think sometimes we can be too uh, too shy at pushing the boundaries
0: yeah i mean one well, you you mentioned the i s s and 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 that there's I mean, that's one experiment straight away, isn't it? That hasn't been conducted on the on the ISS, and it's not long now till we lose the ISS for those types of experiments. Is there? Do you have any feelings about the way the ISS is going and, and whether it's going to get past twenty twenty five?
2: I think that comes down to current administration, particularly in the states, of whether they'll whether they'll back it and whether they'll fund it. I mean, I think they should. I mean, why? Be a very precious, precious resource to lose, um, but at the same time we, it would be great if we could push it out a bit and we could have basically an ISS but around the moon, so that people could spend months at a time uh, in orbit around the moon. And what would be really cool about that is that they could uh, drive machines on the surface of the moon in real time. So you'd have uh, You know, lunar rovers were driven by astronauts from orbit. And the reason why they want to do that is because that would be the ideal thing to do at Mars. Because the real risk of Mars is if you land on Mars and take off again with humans, that is so dangerous right now. Whereas having humans in orbit around Mars and then controlling machines in real time on the surface, that's a way to kind of push us up a notch on, on our way to, to colonizing Mars. So I wouldn't say scrap the ISS. It's been so good, and, and while it's serviceable, it seems crazy to just to, to kind of deorbit it and dump it in the Pacific, like um, like near. But that shouldn't be. Uh, we shouldn't sacrifice other things to keep the ISS going. If yeah, if it does come down to be a choice between,
0: so so I take that and- so I take it from that you are a fan of the the. The lunar platform, the, or whatever it's called at the moment, the gateway.
2: The idea, yeah, of, of of doing that. I think as long as we don't divert resources away from um, from the goal of Mars. I think if it's if it's seen as a uh, a way of testing out technology on, on route to Mars, then yeah, I'm a fan. If it's if it's the moon over over Mars, then uh, maybe not so much.
1: Okay, Colin. Looking back at some of the people that might have inspired you as an author what would be your favourite space book?
2: Oh, that's a, that's a tough question.
1: Yeah, it's a bit of a horrible one.
2: Yeah, so I'm trying to think. When I was a... Uh... That wasn't booked so much when I was a kid that kind of got me. It was that um, my dad took me to a public lecture that Helen Sharman gave um, just after she came back from space. Um, and I say in some of the talks, that I, public talks that I give, that that, that was the, time, the first time I ever realised space could be a job sure you know that it wasn't just some um something to learn about it's something you can make a career out of so yeah i guess less so books and more and more kind of helen's public talk was what really kind of set the fire under me i guess
1: incredible what a person too
2: yeah no she's great i managed to meet her at a a function a couple of years ago and kind of collared her for 60 seconds (laughs) because i know she gets it all the time but i just said thank you for giving that talk um, and told her what
0: I was up to, and she was lovely about it. So yeah, she's she's brilliant. Nice. Yeah, she she seems like a very awesome person indeed. Um, we've uh, we've looked at mental health issues uh, a couple of times on the show with uh, with one of our regular guests, Mars Nation. And uh, is that something that you've covered a lot? The mental health aspects of, go- uh, of space travel and the symptoms, and maybe the the possible cures.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that. Uh, when I give my talk about about the book and talk about uh, talk about future missions to Mars, I think I say that psychology I think is the number one hurdle we have to get over. Um, it's not technology, it's not engineering, it's not radiation's up there, but I would say psychology is the biggest one mm. because we just don't know mm. what that level of isolation, particularly for a Mars mission, will, will do to the human psyche because you haven't got Earth out the window you haven't got Mars in the window either. You're kind of marooned on the way in a small area with the same people. And so recently, um, I've been working with um, Tim Peake on his recent book that comes out very soon, um, The Astronaut Selection Test Book. Uh, And as part of it, we spoke to a a doctor who had spent time in Antarctica on on the Concordia Research Station. I think that's actually the best... uh, analogy we have for Mars psychologically, because if you're on the ISS and you, you're in trouble, say you have a heart attack or some kind of medical emergency, you can be down on the ground in half a day and get urgent medical care. If you're on Concordia in the middle of winter, it's so dark and so cold and so isolated that no planes can land and no one can get to you. So if you're looking at what the, how that feels to be so cut off, I think that's the best analogy we have, but we still don't know. I think, as I said, psychology is the biggest, biggest hurdle for, for really long missions very far away.
1: Do you think about any potential cures? I mean, what, one of the things that we were talking about was an interactive pet. It was a pet seal that um, you know meant that you had to sort of care for this thing. And it, it just made you feel like you were doing something for somebody else, that necessarily your problems uh, weren't, weren't as big. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I think that's been shown to to help. But also, having something like a uh, um, some other purpose. So people have looked at tending to a small kind of herb garden uh, mm. on on route. So you're cultivating things for um, your crew to eat because most of the food you're going to have is pretty dull. Um, but on the route, if you can supplement it with with kind of fresh herbs and spices, um, being the one that helps to grow those things also can be very psychologically beneficial but i think what what might really help is some sort of um you know co- cognitive behavioral therapy cbt has been has been shown to be quite good if you had some kind of ai interface some sort of uh, computer psych, uh, psychotherapist in, in a way that you could talk to uh that would also help, to help you up if you like on to try and keep your mood yeah, no, absolutely. Let's
1: hope it's not going to go the same way as it did with Sam Rockwell on uh Did you watch the film Moon? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: No, we don't
0: want to go that way. <laughs> I I just I, it made made me think then about analogs of of different professions like the the Arctic. Has anyone ever uh spoke to um nuclear submarine sailors? Presumably they're in a, on a sort of similar mission. They're they're isolated for months on end unable to go, in fact, completely out of communication. Uh, has anyone sort of done those tests? Do you, do you know?
2: I haven't come across that. That's a very good point. They, they are also very isolated. But I guess the difference is, if there was a problem, they could, you know, let's say the whole crew came down with something, they could surface. Hmm. Um, rather, otherwise everyone would just be, be wiped out. So there is always that fallback of knowing that mm. if there was an absolute disaster, then you can surface and get out of it. Whereas the thing about Antarctica is that you, you just aren't—you just stuck. There's no escape. Um, but I've not come across any submarine stuff. Yeah, that, that doesn't mean that because we
1: have interviewed a few people who, you know, have have recreated what it might be like to live in close quarters, uh, be it the moon or be it a, a trip to Mars where they're, you know, with the same people for months in the same sort of surroundings. But I think that ultimately all of them said that that they knew in the back of their minds that it wasn't real. And that yeah. if they really needed help, that they were just, you know, 10 minutes away from from, uh, from, from being OK. So that's got to be... Huge in terms of mental yeah. health. I just think, like you said, it's just going into the void. We simply don't know until we do it. We can just put measures in place, I guess.
2: Yeah, and I think it is it is the single biggest unknown. I mean, you can mitigate um, risks that you know about, but we just don't know, like you say, how how it's going to feel to be that cut off and that isolated. So, I think we're just going to have to do it and uh, and try and hope for the best and see if we can put some measures in place to to help but until we do it we just we're just not gonna know
0: yeah I, i've noticed that you're you're bringing out quite a few books you seem to, at the moment you seem to be doing about a book a month as far as i can make out what what's your what's it's been it's,
2: it's been a crazy yeah what's happened is that because everything has to be out for christmas it's every book i've written in the last 18 months has basically come out in the last two months in one in one flurry so it does look like i've been like steam has been coming off my keyboard but uh no it's been a crazy a crazy um a crazy year to 18 months but it's been a bit more spread out than maybe it seems
0: well yeah even even so even in 18 months it's it's prolific what's your once you've got these books and this this book in particular uh out rolling in the in the wide world what's your next big
2: adventure so I've got a, a deal now for the next book, um, which I haven't really tackled in earnest yet, but I will be um, in the next six months or so. It's all about the sun. So it's looking at how, um, even though it's something we're very familiar with, obviously every day we see the sun, we're warmed by it. There are so many things that we don't know about it. And actually, it's it's a kind of enigma at the heart of the solar system that we're still pretty ignorant about. And with the new missions like the Parker Solar Probe and then the um, European uh solar probe going up as well in the next couple of years how, how that might change as we get more um more data on the sun
1: well it's good that you're writing it now colin because in six billion years it will blow up and we just won't <laughs> won't have a chance so
2: yes eventually the sun's gonna, <laughs> gonna come for us. i thought that i'd impress you it.
1: with the one thing i know about the sun <laughs> <laughs> what
0: what advice would you give any of our listeners who are thinking about writing a book
2: give yourself uh strict you know, break it down. Be quite method- methodical about it in terms of your word counts. You know, how long have you got to write it, um, and therefore, how many words a day should you be writing? And I think for me, otherwise you leave it all to the end and you kind of you know, crammed it all together. So for me, a writing day is is fifteen hundred words. If I can get fifteen hundred words done, then I'm then I'm happy.
1: How yes. many How many pages is that to the regular person?
2: Not Not that many. Um Probably a couple of pages
1: the this book is absolutely beautiful I mean
0: with the illustrations and the and everything that 's gone into it makes mm. the book look absolutely fantastic. Who do you work in with partnership to get all that the look of the book
2: correct so that 's with the with the publishers themselves um but in terms of the pictures they they retake the lead from um from me so when I submit my 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 text, I also submit a, a whole list of picture suggestions mm. um but we, the, the whole idea for it was to make it very visual so that it wasn't just a kind of dry page after page, it felt more like a um, you know, like a manual, like mm. a, a how to guide. So, yes, it's a kind of back and forth between me and the, me and the editors of the book. But a lot of the pictures come, uh, picture ideas come from me, and then we work together to make sure it looks the way that we want it to.
1: Yeah, it's a be- beautifully done book, it really, really is stunning. Yeah. We must. Advise you to go out and get this book at once, I assume it's available in all good online uh retail stores. Colin
2: it is you can find yeah, you better find it in all the usual places. When does it come out uh fourth of October oh, so, so tomorrow, yeah by yes. the time this yes. by podcast the time this podcast, podcast out. is out
1: <laughs> it's out <laughs> so go and get It'll it it will
2: be in the real world and over to in amazon
1: or or other online bookstores i'm sure are
2: available yeah if you want to uh if you'd like a signed copy then you can go to my website and get one from there
1: oh even better what's the what's your website colin uh, colin thank you for joining us colin that was really awesome and we love the book uh so guys please go and check it out perfect stocking filler for all you space peeps brilliant thank you very much colin for for coming on no problem thank you for having me our pleasure
0: Really enjoyed that interview, Jamie. Matt,
1: do you know what? Mm. That was brilliant and I think think people will go out and discover a world of space because of Colin. Thank you, Colin.
0: Yes, actually, I, I totally agree. That just leaves us with space fact
1: of the week. Nice.
0: Thanks. Here we go. The universe seems to be full of glowing gas. Really? Yes. So s- recently, some deep observations made with the MUSE spectrograph on ESO's Very Large Telescope have uncovered vast cosmic reservoirs of atomic hydrogen surrounding the
1: distant galaxies. Whoa! How vast are we talking, Matt? Well, the
0: entire universe—vast. Yeah, that's pretty big. So, yeah, it's it's it. Everything is bathed in this in this atomic hydrogen that's glowing with Lyman
1: alpha emission. Sounds like some kind of STD.
0: Yeah, so nearly the whole night sky is invisibly aglow with Lyman alpha emissions. Beautiful. Yeah. And, And that's a really unexpected result as one of the scientists said Caspar barello he said realizing that the whole sky glows in optical when observing the lyman alpha emission from distant clouds of hydrogen was literally eye opening surprise no doubt so yeah just as a, a just as something that i kind of vaguely don't understand lyman alpha emission is the glow that's emitted the light that's emitted when an electron falls from the n equals 2 orbital to the n equals 1 orbital.
1: Oh, why didn't you say? Now it makes sense. And uh,
0: yes, if you're an astrophotographer, Jamie, you know all about these line emission uh, things because you can use special filters to get much better photographs. It's really nice. The astronomers who made the observations have tentatively identified what is causing the distant clouds of hydrogen to emit Lyman-alpha but the precise cause remains a, a mystery. mystery. So yes. The whole universe is a
1: glow. Let's have a really big patron shower, shall we? Yeah. These people. Make it possible for us to continue. Thank you so much to everyone that came to our 100th episode live show from the British Interplanetary Society. We had the excellent Mardis, the band. Thank you, Mardis. We had Alicia from Mars Nation. Who else do we have, Matt? And we had Kate from the Planetary Society. Absolutely incredible uh, guests.
0: And uh, yeah, we had an absolute blast and it genuinely wouldn't have been, imp- wouldn't have been possible. Uh, without the help from the patrons. Yeah, exactly. And Matt,
1: not only have we got got our old school patrons, who we know and love, but should we give a shout out to some of our new patrons? Yeah, we've had some new patrons recently. We've got
0: Hutch, Gary, Pete, Frank and Rory
1: joining us recently. That sounds like a hell of a boy band. It is.
0: Actually, that is a great
1: boy band. Guys, thank you so much. Um, like I say, genuinely not mucking around now. It means we can continue to do this. So thank you. A special shout out to the legends at Skylon Level. Ready? Skylon Level, let's
0: go. Skylon Level, absolutely amazing. They're always sending us some tips as well. So here we go, Bob. We have Darren. We have Erin. We have
1: Catherine. We have Julio. We have Richard. We have Jeffrey. We have Justin. We have John. We have Kaylee. We have Matt. And we have Karel. What a bunch of legends. Thank you so much, guys. Skyline Level is the legends of legends. Thank you to everyone. And, guys, thanks for tuning in, yeah? What are you up to this weekend? Let us know online. You probably are following us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. But if you're not... Where can people go, Matt? They can go to interplanetary.org.uk and see the notes for the show. Wait, did you say dot org.uk? Yes, we did. We couldn't afford .com. I have to
0: say, if you just type in the Interplanetary Podcast into Google, that's it.
1: That's all you yeah, need. Yeah, you'll just have to sco- scroll through a couple of pages <laughs> and you'll and you'll find. Us. We're
0: page 32. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Page thirty two on the dear. Google search. Well, guys, have a great weekend. Good luck to Conor McGregor who is fighting Khabib Nur- Nurmagomedov this weekend in the Ultimate Fighting Championships. I don't know if you're a fan. I am. Good I'm luck not. to Conor. Up oh, the Irish. I- up the Irish. And oh, let's go. No, it's the worst. It's the
0: worst. Bye bye, Spot Camp. See you.